We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Our scripture reading tonight is Psalm 31 and Psalm 32, so if you would turn your Bibles there, I'll give you a moment to do that. Psalm 31 and 32. The first is a, what's that? Some, oh okay, I think it's a hearing aid or something. It's feedback, audio feedback on something. Um, The first is Psalm 31, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in, I'm sorry, you have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief, yes, my soul and my body, for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors and am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I am forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel, for I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things, proud and contemptuously against the righteous. Oh, how great is your goodness! which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I'm cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints, 
For the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. And then Psalm 32, a shorter psalm, a psalm of David, a contemplation it's called. This is, a, this is a wonderful psalm. Listen as I read. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you. And my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart." May you be edified, and God blessed at the reading of his word tonight. Well, good evening. Thank you for coming out here this evening. Can you guys hear me okay? Is this a little low? Seems low from my end, but uh, I'm kind of, I guess, behind the speakers. So, Well, thank you for coming out this evening, and uh, as we have been the last few weeks, uh, we'll be continuing looking through the doctrinal statement uh, that I have developed in uh, preparation for future ordination, Lord willing, and uh, future ministry as well. I hope, as I've said before, that this is profitable, as we even prayed this evening, and that uh, the study of doctrine is not just for theological knowledge, head knowledge, but really for transformation of our hearts and our minds, so that we think rightly and then therefore act and conduct ourselves rightly as well. And I think there are some wonderful truths here this evening. throughout uh, this statement that will cause us to rejoice, to give thanks to the Lord for sending his Son, and uh, also assure us that we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this evening, as it shows up there, we'll be looking at the portion of my statement concerning Jesus Christ. Uh, We often call this section uh, Christology, the study of Christ, Uh, more of a uh, theological term, but simply stated, we're focusing on the person, the second person of the Trinity, Christ, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I, um, is this going to work? There we go. Um, Perhaps somewhat small, but I wanted to just kind of go first through some of the subheadings of this section to give you a picture, an idea of where we're going as we go into the statement, and hopefully that'll keep us oriented uh, 
this evening as we walk through the statement. So number one, we'll be looking at generally just the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, uh, just general things concerning that idea. And then uh, secondly, what uh, many have called the kenosis of Jesus Christ, and that's drawn from the Philippian 2 passage, and I'll give my explanation of what that passage, I believe, is teaching. Number three, uh, the substitutionary atonement and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then fourthly, the ascension and return of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not how all uh, doctrinal statements will you know, subdivide this section of Jesus Christ. That's how I've chosen to do it this evening. But uh, others will, you know, will uh, divide it up other ways. But uh, this covers some of the major uh, um, facets of Christ's work and who he is that I think are important for us to think on. So we begin by simply looking at the second person of the Trinity. Um, I say that I believe that all things were created uh, by him and for him. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, Of course, this is an Old Testament passage foretelling the coming of Christ. And uh, we're told in the first part of that verse that unto us a son is given. And uh, I believe that, you know, Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity and that he is eternally the Son of God. And I think this passage also proves that, that um, the Son is given. He was, uh, he preexisted his birth as the Son, eternally as the Son of God. Matthew 16, 16 says, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Colossians 1, 15, and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Continuing on in my statement, I say, I believe that uh, he was sent by the Father into the world, that he took upon himself a sinless human nature and human body at the incarnation. So he was sent into the world by the Father. In doing so, he took upon himself a second nature, that not only the divine nature, but now the human nature in what uh, some call the hypostatic union. The coming together of the divine nature and the human nature at the incarnation, uh, the enfleshment, if we can put it that way, coming in the flesh. Of course, the two natures being inseparably united yet distinct. It's not an amalgamation of both of them together so that uh, you can't distinguish between the two when we talk about it, uh, but they are inseparable yet maintain their distinction in one glorious person, the person Jesus Christ. So some verses to prove uh, these ideas, Galatians 4.4, 4, but when 
the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son. So he was sent into the world by the father, born of a woman, born under the law. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here we see texts proving the incarnation, that he came in flesh, and yet, and that in doing so, he didn't lose his uh, divine nature. He uh, was, uh, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews, Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So this human nature that he took upon himself is a sinless human nature. He was like us in all ways, except uh, without sin. That doesn't mean that uh, his human body didn't face the consequences of sin, the fallen, you know, uh, consequences. Um, you know, he, he aged like we age. Uh, he faced human suffering and, uh, and emotions and all of that. He was hungry. 1 Peter 2, 22, uh, who committed no sin, nor was defeat, deceit found in his mouth, sinless in his human nature. Romans 1, 3, and 4, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So we see here his human nature, his uh, human uh, descent, as it were, from the seed of David, and declared to be the Son of God, his divine nature, with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Um, continuing on there, then I, uh, having taken on this human nature, and uh, which was sinless, and also maintaining his divine nature, he was then being at once fully God and fully man. So he did not lose his deity, his divine nature, his deity, uh, and at the same time he was fully man. Of course, a number of texts here, we won't look at them all, but just a sampling. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was fully God. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, not get into all this right now, but the idea being here that the, the description God and Savior are both referring to Jesus Christ. So he is both God and Savior. Hebrews 1, 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so he is the express image of God the Father. He is God. Even uh, in human form as he, as he was here on earth and still is today, human, a man. 
2 Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness, again, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Both titles referring to, to Jesus. 1 John 5.20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Matthew twenty twenty eight. Just as the Son of Man, so the focus here being on the fact that he is fully man, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Son of God, often used in Scripture, is pointing to the, his divine nature, whereas often we find uh, the title Son of Man used of Christ to refer specifically to his human nature. John 8.40, But now you seek to kill him, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. So I uh, believe this is Jesus speaking here. He calls himself a man. You know, he's, he's there in the flesh, a man like everyone else. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And we'll use this text to defend a different truth later on. But again, the focus on the fact that he was fully man and uh, Christ called himself that, and uh, the, uh, his disciples, apostles, later on wrote of him in that way, calling him a man. Uh, I believe the incarnation was affected through supernatural conception by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, as foretold in the scriptures. And, of course, you know, I don't think anyone has any qualms about that, of course, at least in our uh, setting here this evening. Pretty self-explanatory, and uh, we just focused on that a month ago or so on about uh, the coming of Christ and uh, his birth. So I want to move on then to the second section here this evening, often called the kenosis of Jesus Christ. Uh, and again, this is in regard to the Philippian 2 passage. And so let me just uh, read here what I say and then try to give a helpful explanation. Uh, to you about that. I write here, I believe that Jesus Christ was both fully God and fully man, as we already said, that the incarnation, that in the incarnation he reta- retained absolute deity, that he retained full use of his divine attributes, that he temporarily laid aside the glory he shared with the Father before the incarnation, incarnation as, he shared, excuse me, as he voluntarily endured humiliation when he suffered unjust ridicule and death. So the first statement, obviously, we already looked at, or the first uh, sentence there about him being fully God and fully man. But uh, why don't you turn, just uh, if you would, just for a moment to Philippians 2, and uh, I'll read that passage, and uh, we'll just uh, briefly talk about it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 
Beginning in verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has... Excuse me, King James coming out here. Therefore God has, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um. Perhaps this isn't as largely debated today as it was maybe a couple decades ago. Uh, But the idea, some have interpreted this passage to mean that in some way uh, Christ laid aside his divine nature at his incarnation or um, perhaps more so laid aside certain divine attributes uh, at his incarnation, in his uh, coming in human flesh. And uh, I, I just don't see this passage to be teaching that. Many have, uh, have come to that conclu- conclusion because it's hard to conceive of the idea of uh, Jesus being both fully God and fully man. Uh, and so this is kind of a way around that. But I don't take that view. Uh, neither do I take the view that uh, Christ necessarily laid aside his independent use of those attributes. Rather, I take this passage to simply be teaching that Christ, in coming in human form, and specifically coming to die uh, an unjust death, uh, humbled himself. You know, think of the status which he had before the incarnation. You know, seated at the right hand of God in glory and privilege and status, and then coming uh, in, the, in the likeness of men, even to the point of death, uh, what a humble estate he took upon himself in doing that. And uh, really then in the context of Philippians, Philippians 2, I think that makes the most sense, that this passage is not talking about laying aside certain divine attributes or really even uh, laying aside his independent use of those attributes, but focusing on the humiliation that Christ underwent in coming in uh, in the likeness of men, in coming in the form of a bondservant. Because when you think about it, you know, uh, Paul is, what does Paul tell the Philippians to do in verse 5? Let this mind be in you. It wouldn't make much sense if he calls them to be like this, like Christ, because they don't have the divine attributes. So how can they lay aside, you know, some attribute that they don't have? So, That can't be the case, I think, again, rather, it's that they are to have the kind of humble attitude that Christ had in laying aside his glory so that he could come and die uh, in a very humble way, Uh, even, you know, a death on on the cross. So maybe you haven't come across this before. Maybe it doesn't bother you too much because you haven't had to think about it. Uh, And I don't say all this to confuse you or to... uh, you know, undo any kind of understanding you already had about this passage regarding the humble estate that he came in 
but simply to say that uh, despite what others have said, this is you know, my, I guess, humble interpretation of this passage of what I think Paul is teaching us about what Christ did when he came uh, in the form of a bondservant and came uh, in human flesh. So just a few verses, though, to kind of back all of this up. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, I won't read that again. We just already read it. Colossians 2, 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So he didn't lay aside any you know, of his divine attributes. Otherwise, he would cease to be fully God in flesh. Matthew eight twenty six through 27, But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Uh, then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? The reason I include a text like this is to simply prove that, you know, he was exercising his divine attributes, you know, his omnipotence, to be able to calm uh, the sea and rebuke the winds. Uh, he was uh, he was acting uh, in his divine nature at this very moment to be able to do these things. John one forty eight. Nathaniel said to him, "How do you know me?" Jesus answered and said to him, "Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you." Again, God's omniscience, his all knowingness. You know, he knew where Nathaniel was. Uh, of course, Nathaniel was surprised because you know, at this point he probably didn't perceive really who Jesus was, uh, fully at least. So we see here on multiple occasions, you can think of other miracles performed by Christ that demonstrate, you know, he had all of his divine attributes at his disposal to use. John 2.25, And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man, again, his omniscience, his wisdom, that he had concerning the heart of, of man. Second Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. And I take that, again, not to mean uh, you know, poor in uh, riches necessarily, although he was, I think, of a humble estate in that way, but poor in the sense of the humbleness, humility that he took upon himself that through his poverty uh, might become rich, that you through his poverty might become rich. John 17, 5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so I, I use this verse to defend the fact that though he took on this humble estate, the, the Father uh, glorified him once again, you know, gave him a high name, just as Philippians chapter 2 tells us, um, verse 9, therefore God also has highly exalted him, you know, after his death on the cross, after uh, his resurrection and ascension, therefore God has also has highly exalted him and given him, in, him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And so Christ has been exalted once again. He has that glory which he had before the incarnation. 
Moving on then to the next section here, uh, the substitutionary atonement and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as I've said before, at any time someone has a question or like some clarification, just uh, feel free to raise your hand. I say here, I believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth, that he vicariously atoned for the sins of mankind on the cross, the just for the unjust. Uh, vicariously, you could also use the term, you know, he, uh, the, he's, he was the substitution for man. Well, that's why even at the beginning there I said substitutionary atonement, same idea, idea there, sometimes called the vicarious atonement. John one twenty nine. the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 1 Peter 2:21 and 22 For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth so here focusing on the suffering that Christ did for us on the cross uh, then the next two verses verses 23 and 24 who when he was reviled did not revile in return when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. There's some uh, wonderful, tremendous truths just to think on there in that passage alone, that uh, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins. That is true. If you're a child of God, you have died to your sins, to, to the flesh. The old man is gone. That we might live for righteousness. I hope that is our aim and our goal. And we can live for righteousness because of what Christ has done for us. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just... For the unjust, that we might that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Um, in doing so, he offered himself voluntarily as a propitiation for sin to fully satisfy God's righteous anger, and so. Uh, by being our substitute and offering himself uh, for us on the cross, he was the propitiation for our sin, which fully satisfied God's righteous anger. Uh, propitiation is, uh, it is the appeasement or satisfaction of God's wrath. That's what we mean when we say propitiation. Uh, Romans 3, 25 and 26, whom God set, set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Hebrews 2, 16 and 17. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation or appeasement or satisfaction for the sins of the people. 1 John 2.2, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Perhaps this is a verse we're quite familiar with. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Continuing on here, um, I believe that he was raised bodily in a glorified state from the tomb as a testimony to the sufficiency of his sacrificial death on the cross and as a guarantee of all uh, guarantee of all believers' future bodily resurrection. So Christ was raised uh, and glorified in states, uh, and in having been resurrected, uh, it is testimony or bears witness to the sufficiency of his sacrificial death. And First Corinthians 15 has much to say about that. Um, you know, if if he died. For our sins, well, that's great, but if he didn't rise from the dead, well, then he's like any other man. You know, and what's the guarantee that he actually paid for our sins if he uh, couldn't even rise again from the dead? 1 Corinthians 15, 15 through 17, Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised, uh, up, he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Romans eight eleven. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Colossians 3, 3 and 4. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So defending here the fact that uh, uh, his resurrection is a guarantee that all believers will be uh, resurrected bodily and uh, receive their glorified bodies in the future. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it is it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Moving on then to the ascension and return of Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ thereafter ascended into heaven where he mediates for the redeemed as the high priest and advocate before the throne of the Father. Acts 1, 9 through 11 uh, speaks of his ascension. It says, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, Two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into, the heaven, into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, 
will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Romans 8, 34 and 35, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And uh, the answer to this question is rhetorical. Nothing. You know, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not any of these things which Paul mentions here. On the basis that uh, he is always and evermore making intercession for us before the Father. And uh, in that we find much confidence in the kind of trials that we face today, that he is interceding for us on our behalf. It's 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We looked, of course, at this verse earlier, focusing on his human nature, but now we focus on the first portion of the verse, which, uh, which uh, gives us this truth, that there is one mediator between God and men. Uh, pastor spoke on this some this morning, that uh, there is no intermediary between, you know, uh, we don't need a pope or some priest uh, to go to God for us, but we can go before him, before the throne room of grace, to pray, to ask, uh, make requests of him because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. He is our mediator. And the perfect one, being fully God and fully man, as we've been talking about this evening. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Man, tremendous verses there. I hope, if nothing else, this evening you come away with that assurance that uh, we have a high priest who's... uh, you know, more sufficient than the high priests in the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, you know, the Levites, who, uh, who, who, they, who themselves sinned, you know, not uh, perfect high priests in any kind of way. And now we have that great high priest who, uh, who can not only, who not only, you know, is our mediator and intercedes for us, but can sympathize with our weaknesses, and uh, what a blessing that is, knowing that he has faced similar temptations as we have. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is also able to save to the other, uttermost those who come to God through him, since he, always, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God 
for us. 1 John 2.1 My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I continue on here in this section saying that uh, I believe that uh, he was made head of the church, that one day Christ will return to receive the church at the rapture and later will return to the earth to establish his millennial kingdom on earth after the tribulation period. Of course, we'll get into more of that later on when we talk about end times, but uh, just a few things here that pertain specifically to uh, Christ's work. Ephesians 1.22, And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. John 14, 1 through 4, let, us, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be also. And where I go, you know, in the way you know. So promising the fact that though Christ is leaving and did leave after his resurrection, ascended to heaven, he will return and uh, rapture his people to himself. So just uh, recapping here um, as we come to a close in this portion, a few other things I want to talk about here this evening. Um, We looked at the doctrine of Jesus Christ, often uh, termed Christology, focusing on the second person of the Trinity, the, uh, the matter about the kenosis of Christ, the substitutionary atonement and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and fourthly, the ascension and return of Jesus Christ. I know we breezed through there quite quickly. If anyone has questions at this point, I can uh, happily click back to, uh, to any particular section that you'd like to ask a question about or a clarification on. Anyone have any thoughts this evening um, that I can help with? All right. I'll give you a minute to think. Uh, I know that's a lot uh, to think on uh, here this evening. But uh, I wanted to just briefly uh, address one of the questions that was asked last week. Uh, and the Collins are not here this evening. Maybe they're watching online, or we'll see this later. Maybe Kevin will hear it when he's uh, helping with the recordings like he does to upload those to the website. But there's a question that was asked. Actually, John, I think, kind of first raised it about uh, the indwelling of, of the Spirit because I had a statement uh, in last week's uh, um, time about how God indwells the believer, and of course, we typically think about the Holy Spirit doing the indwelling work. But I, uh, I refer to John fourteen twenty three that talks about how we will make our home with them. That is, I uh, take that to mean the Triune God will make His home with the believer. So I think that's one instance to prove that though we might specifically think that ministry to be one of the Holy Spirit. There's much evidence to say that, in general, uh, the triune God makes uh, their home with the believer. 
and uh, Pastor also uh, brought to my attention another passage. I think it's John seventeen twenty three uh, that talks about uh, uh, I and them and you and me, meaning uh, Jesus uh, being in God and God uh, being in Him and Jesus being in the believer, I and them. And so there's multiple instances where, you know, kind of from all different angles, there's this idea of the Holy Spirit being in the believer, Jesus being in them, God being in them. And so perhaps, you know, we've made, you know, and maybe the, the, uh, the blunder uh, somewhat of saying specifically that Jesus is the one who, indwe- or excuse me, the Holy Spirit is the one who does the indwelling ministry, where Scripture really points to the fact that, God, the triune God, has uh, made his home with us. But then connected to that, um, I think Christy brought up the question about uh, the kind of the uh, geographical sense of the Spirit's indwelling, as if, um, which to say that, you know, does this mean that the Spirit's indwelling is some kind of localized thing or, you know, geographical thing uh, when we talk about indwelling? Uh, and I said last week that I don't think we should focus so much on the kind of uh, l- the geographical aspect of it, you know, as if the Holy Spirit wasn't omnipresent and everywhere before, but now he is because now he's seated in us somewhere. No, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent, um, all three persons of the Godhead. And so I take the idea of indwelling to refer not specifically to, you know, uh, where he's located, but where he's actively at work. He is not doing the activity in the unbeliever that he is doing in the believer. When we're born again, when we're regenerated, there is activity now going on that wasn't going on before. And that's what the indwelling ministry is. It's the spirit's activity of first off, regenerating, and then all of the other blessings that come with that, you know, sanctifying us and teaching us and guiding us and, and convicting us, all of those activities. And so indwelling really is uh, more about the activity than the, you know, the place in which he is. Because as we said before, he is omnipresent. He's everywhere, even in a sense with the unbeliever, though not doing the same kind of activity in them that he is uh, doing in the believer. So I hope that's my uh, kind of cut at it, and that was after some more discussion with Pastor on the, on the matter. Um, but uh, perhaps that's raised another question uh, in your mind, um, so I'm happy to take uh, any question about that or about anything else that's been uh, discussed this evening. And if not, well, then we will uh, end our time uh, now and enjoy some fellowship And I don't think anyone will complain about that, (laughs) getting out a few minutes early. But anyone have any any last thought or question before we close this evening? All right. Let me close in a word of prayer, and then uh, we can enjoy some fellowship here. Heavenly Father, I thank you that uh, you have given us your word and that you have given us so many scripture passages, so many texts, Lord, explaining exactly uh, 
who Christ is and uh, what he has done for us. Lord, we thank you uh, that we have these truths, Lord, that give us great confidence that you sent your son into this world to live a perfect, sinless life. Lord, to demonstrate that you are the perfect sacrifice. Lord, that you are a substitute, that you are the satisfaction for uh, the wrath of God so that we might have forgiveness of sins. Lord, thank you that you are our mediator and you are our advocate and that you are evermore interceding for us, that we might have no fear of, uh, of future judgment but, Lord, have the assurance that uh, when we stand before God someday, we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. And, uh, Lord, for that we are grateful. Lord, may we go on our day and evening and into this week giving thanks to God for that. And, uh, Lord, may we often and regularly be going before the throne room of grace and uh, that we might uh, ask, Lord, of you the things that are on our hearts. Lord, knowing that you love to hear our prayers and answer them according to your perfect will. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.